Colossians chapter 1. I will begin in verse 13 and I will end in verse 15. This is the word of the Lord saying to give it your full attention. For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And for our time this afternoon, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. And now to the preaching of his word, you may be seated. <clears throat> Paul, in verse 13, as if you remember, began to speak of our great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And our great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, Paul uh, pictures for us, us being transferred from one kingdom to the next, us being under the domain of sin and darkness and death and Satan and the world. And now that we have believed upon Christ by faith, the Spirit has united us to the beloved Son. We are now members of the kingdom of Christ. We are now members no longer of the kingdom of Satan, but now we are members of the kingdom of Christ. But as we turn to verse 15, Paul now begins to bring us up this Mount Everest of verses. And he begins to tell us who our Christ is. If someone was to ask you, who is Jesus Christ? For Paul, we must begin with the supremacy of Christ. For Paul, we must begin with the divinity, the godness of Jesus Christ. And he slays that out in verse 15 beautifully. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Two points for us to consider this afternoon. Number one, the invisibility of God. And number two, the image of the invisible God. Number one, the invisibility of God. And number two, the image of the invisible God. Let's consider the first point, that is the invisible God. Or, yes, the invisible God. When we consider our God saints and who He is, one of the most fundamental truths about the nature of our God that Holy Scripture gives to us is that our God cannot be seen. Is that our God cannot be seen. Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 through 20, you, you have this scene where Moses is crying, as it were, to see the glory in the face of the Lord. And you remember what the Lord says. Actually, Moses first says, please show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make my all my goodness pass before you and you will proclaim the name of the Lord before him before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. He said further, God is saying, you cannot see my face for mankind cannot see me and live. You cannot see me and live. John four twenty four. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. First Timothy one seventeen. Now to the eternal, immortal, invisible to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. John one eighteen. No one has seen God at any time. First Timothy three six sixteen. Who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light. 
whom no man has seen or can see. Congregation, what we see from the overall testimony of Holy Scripture concerning the visibility of God, whether or not we can see God, is stated in the negative. That we cannot see God, for God cannot be seen. God is a spirit. This truth here, saints, as God being invisible, uh, God being spirit, uh, points to the spiritual nature of our God. This points to the spiritual nature of our God. What simply means that God is not like you and I. God is a spirit. God is not like you and I. God is spirit. Now, when we say that God is spirit, what does that mean? What does it mean when we say God is spirit? Well, simply put, it means that God is not material. We are material creatures, right? I mean, just, just looking at your hands, you can, you'll notice quite quickly that you are a material, uh, subject. But God is immaterial. God is immaterial. Which saints leads to the great doctrine of what's called divine simplicity. God being immaterial, God not having, you can say, material parts, points to the fact that God is not composite. God is not composite. And saints, if there's anything that separates us from God, it is this doctrine here of what's called the simplicity of God. Think of us, congregation. Think of us. Think of who we are. There are a myriad of things that are going on with us right now. A myriad of things that are going on within us right now. We are composed of a body. And in addition to being composed of a body, we are composed of parts like feet and hands and ears. We need all of these material things in order for us to be. For instance, if you don't have ears, then you can't hear. If you don't have a right or left arm, then you might not be able to write uh, correctly or in the manner in which um, is, is seen as neat. We are composed of a soul, as you heard from Pastor Antonio last Sunday morning. We are composed of existence and essence. Existence being that you are. You are something that is, you know, in the world today. And essence, that by which you are. So you are a human. So saints, there's a lot of things that we need in order for us to be the total package. We need everything in order for us to be us. If you lose one of your parts, then you lose a little bit of yourself. And if you lose the wrong part, like your essence and your existence, then you're no longer here. What we are saying with God when we're saying he's spirit, we're pointing to the fact that God does not need anything to be what he is. We are pointing to the fact, when we say that God is spirit, we're pointing to the fact that God does not need anything for him to be what he is. For God to be loving, he doesn't need an attribute called love. You do. Right? For God to be merciful, he doesn't need an attribute called mercy, but you do. You need such. God doesn't need physical parts to be. God doesn't need... Let me say this. It's not, it's not a wrong thing for God not to be man. It's not a wrong thing for God not to have manly or human features. That's okay. We don't want God to have those features. I'll tell you about why in a minute. God doesn't need immaterial parts to be. He doesn't need existence and essence in order for him to be. But God is full 
in his being. God is full in his being. Or as older theologians would say, God is purely actual in all that he is. And what that simply means, means, saints, is, is this. That God cannot be reduced to anything, and God cannot be heightened by anyone or anything inside himself. In other words, one practical, um, one practical take from this is, God does not fall in love with you. And God doesn't grow out of love with you. Wouldn't we want that with all the ones whom we encounter in this world, that this one does not fall out of love, with, uh, love for me. But when we talk about God, is God cannot fall out of love. And you can't make him love you more. Because he's full in all that he is. He's full of love. Saints of God, God is purely actual. And this is what it means for God, saints, to not have a body. You might say, well, what's the big deal about a body? I mean, bodies are, are nice. It's good to have a body. So why can't God have a body? Why does he have to have a spirit? Well, <clears throat> this is a, gets into a big, big argument. But simply put, anything that has a body is in potential to be something that it currently is not. So for, give me, for example, right now, you are sitting down, right? You have actualized a state of existence which is sitting. But in about 20 minutes or so, you're going to actualize another state of existence, which is what? Standing. Your body now went from being seated to now standing. You now have changed. And what we are saying with God is God does not, in any way, shape, or form, change. He does not become something further than what He is. He does not lessen Himself to be something for us or for Himself, saints. When we say that God does not have a human arm, we are to be down about that because just because God doesn't have a human arm doesn't mean that God cannot reach us. Again, saints, just because God does not have a human arm and hand doesn't mean that God cannot reach us with its outstretched arm and hand. Just because God doesn't have a physical ear doesn't mean that He doesn't hear the cries of His people in Egypt. Doesn't mean that He doesn't hear your cry. He doesn't need physical parts to be. And this, this is the beauty of our God, saints. So when God, when Paul says that God is invisible, he's pointing to the fact that God is spirit. And God being spirit points us to the fact of that he's absolute in all that he is. He's absolute in all that he is. <clears throat> the second point, which is the image of the invisible God. Now that we know what it means for God to be invisible, spirit, to have uh, absoluteness in his being, saints, and there's much more we can say about that. Let's, let's again, uh, again consider verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Now let's just break this down. Who is the he that Paul is referring to? Who is the he that Paul is referring to? Again, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now this he is the eternal son of God, uh, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And he says that this he, the eternal son, is the image of the invisible God. Now, there are a few things to note before we explain what image means. First, who is the image or who is the invisible God? Who is the invisible God that Paul is speaking of? Again, image means the eternal son. Now, who is the eternal son imaging? Who is the invisible God? And saints, when we read our Bibles... 
the word God, and hear me now, the word God is usually in reference to the Father. When we read our Bibles, usually, depending on the context, the word God is reserved only for the Father. Now, not all the time does God mean the Father. But when you have in a sentence, all three persons, usually the title God is referred to the Father. Ephesians 4, uh, 4 through 6, there was one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the hope that belongs to you. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So all three persons are mentioned here, but the title God is referred to or to only to the Father. Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, Born of a woman, born under the law. Genesis, or uh, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Right? So when the Trinitarian persons are mentioned in a sentence, right? In a verse. Usually, God is in reference to the Father. Now, this doesn't mean that the Son and the Spirit are not God. Okay? This doesn't mean that at all. But what they're getting at, and what are what the writers of Holy Scripture are getting at, is they are making distinctions within the persons. They are making distinctions within the persons. We can talk about that more uh, after service. But back to our text, when Paul says the invisible God, he has in mind the Father. So the text should read like this. The eternal Son is the image of the Father. The eternal Son is the image of the Father. Now why does Paul say the Son is the image of the Father? Why does Paul say the Son is the image of the Father? Now, what's the big deal? I mean, we are made in God's image. So, what is the difference between the Son being in the image of God and us being in the image of God? What's the difference? Well, for the Son to be made in the image of God, it doesn't mean that he was made into the image of God. Again, for the Son to be the image of God doesn't mean that he's made into the image of God. The Son is not made, right? And then after creation, the Father looks at the Son and says, look at my perfect image. As if there once was a time when the Son was not, then he's made, and then now he is the image of God. That's not what that means. It doesn't mean that us being created in God's image um, is the same as the Son being the image of the Father. We are created in God's image. We are created in God's image. But the Father communicates His image to the Son. God shares some of His features onto us. God shares some of His features, some of His image onto us, namely our intellect and our will. That is what distinguishes us from the rest of creation. But saints of God, when we consider the Son of God being the image of the Father, God doesn't share some of His likeness to the Son. He shares all of who He is. He gives all of who He is to the Son. Again, the difference between us being made in the image of God and the difference between the Son being the image of God is that the Son does not possess a likeness of the Father. But the Son possesses all that the Father is. That's the difference, saints. If we had the image of the Son as Son, then you would be God then you would be God. But saints of God, the Son does not just resemble some likeness of the Father, 
But the Son has the same nature as the Father. The Son has the same nature as the Father. And what this simply means, saints, is the Son is as much God as the Father is. Now, this is a point that's very elementary for us, is it not, saints? But, saints, it is this point here that our forefathers, that those who came before us died over, that Jesus is God. We can say that right now comfortably and praise God for that. But there once was a time when we could not say that comfortably. That Jesus is God. Saints of God, when we say that Jesus is God, what we are saying is everything that the Father possesses, the Son possesses. Everything that the Father possesses, the Son possesses. Everything that the Father has, the Son has. All of what it means to be God, for the Father to be God, the Son possesses. The the Son is not a less deity than the Father. The Son is not more God than the Father. The Son is equal with the Father. Which means, saints, practically speaking, this is great comfort for us, knowing that we're not worshipping some vain deity. Like, we're not Muslims. We are not those who are worshipping a false god. Saints of God, hear me now. You are not wasting your time on this earth, but you are worshiping the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is captured in Scripture, saints, clearly. John fourteen nine: the one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? People are bickering over Christ, saying, Christ, show us the Father. And Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, what else do you need? John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Colossians 1.19, we'll get there soon. For it was the Father's good pleasure for the, all the fullness to dwell in Him. Congregation, the overall message of the Bible and saints of God, if you have children or if you're privileged enough to teach little ones, teach them this one essential truth that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is God. And saints, this point is not merely for us to know in order for us to be precise. I don't, I'm not teaching you this for you to get a 4.0 GPA on a theological quiz. But saints of God, this point here is what our salvation hinges upon. If Christ is not God, then we are not saved. Jesus says in John 8:24, Therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe I am... You will die in your sins. Here Christ is saying, He's associating Himself with that one in Genesis 3, that burning bush who says, I am to Moses. He's saying, that one is also me. That I am God. If you don't believe I am God, you will die in your sins. You will die in your sins. Confessing our Christ as God is the hinge of Christianity. It is the hinge of Christianity. Our salvation depends on this man from Nazareth not being merely a man, but God in the flesh. You see, saints, in order for us to be saved, we don't need an angel. And we don't need a man that's been graced you know, to a supernatural capacity. But we need God in the flesh. We need God to take upon our sins. Only God can remove the infinite debt that we owe to God. Only God can be raised from the dead and has the power to be raised from the dead. Only God has the power to come back and to judge the living and the dead. Only God. And we have that in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, saints, there's a great comfort in this text. (coughs) Great comfort in this text. 
knowing what we know about our Lord, and knowing what we know about salvation, knowing, knowing what we know about the totality of what the Gospels present to us, the God who is invisible has made Himself known by assuming our flesh. Again, the God who is invisible, this is great comfort, has made Himself known by assuming our flesh. Thomas Aquinas says beautifully, the Father says all three persons in the Word. The Father says all three persons in the Word. In other words, Jesus Christ makes known to us the invisible God. That the eternal Son of God, who is invisible Himself, becomes visible and makes known to us the invisible God. If we want to know who God is, if we want to unravel the mystery of the Trinity, no, look no further than the highest expression and revelation of the doctrine of the God, of who our God is. It is Jesus Christ. Although our God who is a deep ocean of mystery, Jesus Christ has filled out the mystery. He has explained to us the mystery. St. John tells us in 1 John 8, No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who is in the arms of the Father, He has explained Him. That is, the invisible becomes invisible and explains the invisible. He teaches us the invisible God. Saints of God, you've already underwent that. You already know the invisible God. Once you heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is Jesus Christ through the agent of someone, whoever told you about the gospel. He spoke to you and revealed to you the invisible God. He spoke to you and you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, our invisible God, saints. He's visibly seen in Jesus Christ. Our invisible God is visibly seen in Jesus Christ. And in the person and work of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> our, our God who is invisible, He visibly shows us who He is. Isn't that a marvel and a wonder? That our God who is invisible, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in the invisibility visibility of the second person of the triune God made flesh, He shows us who He is. Let me give you an example. 1 John 4 says God is love. We know that God is love. And all throughout his life, and most especially on the cross, God visibly shows us what 1 John 4 says. He visibly shows his love. We don't have an abstract idea of God's love, which is great, but we have God's love set before us. John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no one than this, that a person will lay down his life for his friends. In other words, God says, I am the God of love. I am love. And now I will show you what love looks like. He shows us. 1 John 1, nine says that God is faithful. You remember in Genesis, God says that He will send someone, the seed of a woman, to crush the serpent. The question of the mind of the Old Testament is this. Will God be remain faithful to what He said? Will He remain faithful to this promised seed? Well, saints of God, our answer is in John chapter 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Does God remain faithful? Hear me now. 
hear me now. Yes, God remains faithful. He visibly shows His faithfulness by what? By coming in the flesh. Saints of God, Jesus Christ visibly reveals to us the attributes of our God. Visibly shows us who our God is. As we come to a close, saints, <clears throat> there was another great comfort in this text. As we already stated, the one who is invisible assumes our flesh and makes himself seen. And what we have in Jesus Christ is both the image of the Father, but also we have the image of the visible man. We have the image of the Father who is full of deity, but also we have the image of the visible man. Jesus Christ in one person is truly God and truly man. So then why does He come for us? Why does the eternal Son of God come in a rescue mission? What is He doing? Well, saints of God, if there's one thing that the eternal Son does, is that He assumes our image to do one thing, and that is to restore and to elevate our image. Adam scarred, marred, bruised our image. And the eternal Son of God says, I will take on that bruised image. Defiled and all. I will take on that bruised image. And I will heal, I will restore, and I will elevate. That's what Jesus Christ does, saints. He takes on our broken image. Defiled and all. Sickness and all. And he elevates it. Greg of Nazianza says, in this character of the form of a servant... He condescends to us, fellow servants, nay, to his servants, and takes upon him a strange form, bearing all of me and mine in him, and that in himself he may exhaust the bad as fire does wax. In Jesus Christ, saints, he takes our image, and just as wax, when it touches the fire, he exhausts all the bad. And he says that I might partake of his nature by the blending. Saints of God, Jesus Christ assumes all of us in order for all of us to be healed. He assumes our polluted mind, heals and elevates our mind. He assumes our polluted wills, heals and elevates our polluted wills. He heals, he assumes our passions and heals and elevates them. This is what Christ does for us, saints. And the great end of such, of such a great condescension is found in 1 Corinthians 15.4, just as we bore the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Saints of God, you bear, and you continue to bear the scars of Adam, but one day those scars will be no more when you will fully put on the image of the Son. You will fully put on the image of the Son. Let's pray.